0: A reading from the book, Isaiah. A shoot will grow from the stump of Jesse. A branch will sprout from the roots. The Lord's spirit will rest upon him. A spirit of wisdom and understanding. A spirit of planning and strength. A spirit of knowledge and fear of the Lord. He will delight in fearing the Lord. He won't judge by appearances nor decide by hearsay. He will judge the needy With righteousness and decide equity for for those who suffer the land in the land he will strike the violent with the rod of his mouth he will by by the breath of his lips he will kill the wicked righteousness will be the belt around his hips and faithfulness the belt around his waist the wolf will live with the lamb. The leopard will lie down with the young goat. The calf will, and the lion will feed together, and little child and a little child will lead them. The cow and the bear will graze. Their young will lie down together, and a lion will eat straw like an ox. A nursing child will play over a snake's hole. A toddler will reach right over a serpent. The serpents den. They won't harm or destroy anywhere on my holy mountain. The earth will surely be filled with knowledge of the Lord, just as the waters cover the sea.
1: All right. So, this morning I get to do a Y'all Saint sermon, um, and it's funny. I I don't know. I do one of these every year, but um, and every year I think I've I've picked a weird one. But um, we're doing Maria Montessori today. <laughs> She's not a church figure, um, but uh, but hopefully, just stay with me. Trust me on this one. Um, I do plan to spend more time talking about her philosophy than the actual events of her life, although she led a really incredible life, um, that if you want to read about all the ins and outs of that, she's really interesting. Um, but I feel like her legacy is in her method. Um, so anyway, before I get ahead of myself, I'm going to pray. Lord, thank you so much for being with us this morning. Thank you, um for giving us a vision of your kingdom that includes being led by children. Um, And I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts would be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our redeemer. Amen. All right. So Maria Montessori, let's go. Um, So like I said, I think her legacy is in her method. So just to see how far that's extended with those of us who are here, if you were educated in a Montessori setting at any point? Is there anyone here? Yeah, got one on the balcony. Okay, if your children were educated in a Montessori setting at any point? Yeah. Okay, got a few. Okay, if you can remember back to your, some of us it's farther than others, but if you can remember back to your time as a student or if you're currently an educator, you can think about your teaching. Um, Have you ever sat on the floor for circle time? as a student or as a teacher. Okay. Um, Have you ever participated in hands-on learning where you use flashcards or blocks or something that you move with your hands in order to learn? Anybody, anybody, okay. Um, So anyone who raised their hand, you've been touched by the legacy of Maria Montessori. Um, Here at Oak Church, we have Montessori-style Christian education Uh, Our kids, aged 4 to 12, fish participate in Godly Play, um, which takes Montessori principles and uses them to teach kids about faith. Um, And Montessori herself did some of this work in her lifetime. She was a devout Catholic. Um, She spoke about her faith. But in an effort to make her method work for the broadest possible audience, um, she ended up removing the religious component of it. Um, other scholars like Sophia Cavalletti, who developed catechesis of the Good Shepherd, Sonia Stewart, who developed young children and worship, and Jerome Berryman, who developed Godly Play, have all taken Montessori's ideas and methods and used them to teach kids about faith. Um, so the Montessori method and Christian education blend so beautifully together because her philosophy and methodology are based on a really biblical idea, and that is the idea of centering children. Um, now, there are Christians who will tell you that centering children or listening to children, allowing children to lead, are distinctly unchristian ideas. Uh, there is an entire industry built around Christian experts on child-rearing who would be happy to sell you books, videos, and conferences that teach parents exactly how to break their children's will in order to make them compliant. They'll quote you Proverbs 13:24 and say that God commands us to hit our children in order to love them. They'll tell you that babies and young children are so depraved that their physical needs for sleep and food and their natural curiosity are evidence of their sin nature and must be eradicated in order to foster unconditional obedience to their parents. These ideas may sound really extreme, and they are, but through the popularity of people like James Dobson and Ted Tripp, some really dangerous theology around children has made its way into the larger American Christian culture These views have their roots in an authoritarian understanding of family, with a father in charge, a mother who's obedient to her husband, and children who are obedient to their parents. The implicit idea here is that a parent is God to the child, and obeying the parent is how the child obeys God. There's no space here for someone lower down on the hierarchy to have a different idea of what following God looks like in any given scenario. Their own thoughts and feelings and opinions are subordinate to those of whomever is further up the chain. This way of viewing children is not only disturbing, but it's profoundly unbiblical. If you look at Isaiah 11 that we just read, um, we see a vision of God's kingdom that's marked by peace and safety. Um, The righteous one uses uh, the rod of his mouth to strike the wicked, and the wicked is the one who is hurting children and widows. Um, In a complete reversal of the authoritarian view, a little child is leading the way. If you look at Jesus, who this prophecy speaks of, Jesus is the God child who comes to us, uh, born as a literal baby, a baby who grew into a boy who didn't tell his parents that he was going to hang out in the temple and chat with the rabbis, and didn't seem particularly apologetic when Mary and Joseph came back to retrieve him later. This boy Jesus grew into a man who was pretty sassy with his mom when she asked him to change water into wine, and a man who had no children of his own but who welcomed children and mothers and told the men in his sphere that they needed to be more like children in order to participate in the kingdom of God. When Jesus taught those who taught that those who welcome children in his name are welcoming him, he declared children as God to us, not that kids are gods to be worshipped, But like in Matthew 25, when Jesus says, whatever you do for the least of my brothers and sisters, you do for me, that includes kids. Kids are the least of these. And in case that leaves you unconvinced, Jesus says specifically in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, that whoever welcomes one such child in my name welcomes me. So when we welcome a child in Jesus's name, we are welcoming Jesus. And welcoming children is something that Maria Montessori did really well. Um, Maria was born in Italy in 1870, and by all accounts, she was a bright and curious child who loved to learn. In an era when most areas of study and most occupations were closed to women, Maria wanted to become a doctor. Despite facing terrible prejudice throughout her education, she became one of Italy's first doctors in 1896. Montessori practiced medicine almost exclusively with the poor and disabled motivated by her deeply rooted faith and belief that all people deserve quality care. Her work with children who had been committed to an asylum is what sparked her idea for improving education with kids who have physical, cognitive, and emotional challenges. It's with this population that she first developed the materials and methods that are still used today in Montessori classrooms around the world. After her success with children in the asylum, she was invited to establish a school for poor children Basically, to get them off the streets where they were causing havoc for a building developer. From this point on, she left behind medicine and dedicated the rest of her life to education. The children, who again, nobody thought were particularly capable, thrived in her casa de bambini, her children's house, with the five-year-olds who had been running the streets while their parents were at work, now reading and writing. Her methods quickly gained popularity throughout the world and within five years of opening that first children's house, she had a best-selling book and a full schedule of international travel, travel, training teachers, and what came to be known as the Montessori method. Even though the fascist powers that rose to prominence in the lead up to World War II aggressively closed children's houses and burned Maria's books, she was even burned in effigy in in, uh, Germany, she continued her work in India where she spent the war years on house arrest. What happened was she happened to be on a three week trip to India for a speaking tour at the outbreak of war and as an Italian citizen, she was detained for the next seven years. After the war was over, she dedicated her life to writing and speaking on her methods, a task that her son and her grandchildren continued long after her death. Follow the child is a phrase often used in Montessori circles and comes from a quote that Maria Montessori said. I love this phrase because I think it's emblematic of the way Montessori approached education. She observed children with an eye that was at once scientific and loving. She then built a system of education that was informed by her observations. If you walk into a Montessori classroom, and this includes the godly playrooms, you can poke your head in there after church if you haven't seen them. You will see that everything in the space is designed for children. Teacher and child sit beside one another on the floor as equals. Low shelves are carefully arranged with beautiful, useful materials that kids can touch and move with their hands in order to learn. Time is experienced differently in a Montessori environment. Rather than having to learn the same things in the same way at the same time, students in a Montessori classroom are given long uninterrupted work periods in which children as young as two and three years old choose what materials they wish to engage with and for how long. Teachers carefully observe the students at work and use these observations to track their learning and determine what lessons the children are ready for next. In today's classrooms, ideas like hands-on learning, student choice, and flexible seating are considered very mainstream. But this was not the case in Montessori's time. Compulsory education laws were not widespread, which means that girls, the poor, disabled, and racial and ethnic minorities were not guaranteed even the most basic education. For children who did receive the benefit of an education, teaching methods were more tailored to adult ideas and preferences than children. I don't know any children who want to sit in an uncomfortable desk and listen to a teacher lecture for long periods of time. Maybe they're out there. I haven't met one. But that was usually the, unless it was a one-room schoolhouse where the children were teaching each other. That was kind of where they were going. Um, Education was also used in some cases as a means of control and violence. Um, This was part of the era of Indian residential schools in the United States and in Canada. Um, which of course have resulted in generation-spanning trauma. Um, And were mostly run by Christians, by the way. Um, But when we hold up Montessori's methods next to those of her contemporaries, we see how revolutionary they were. I believe that the results were so starkly different because her starting point was very, very different. Whereas other educators centered power or a desire to cast others in their own image, Maria Montessori centered actual children in the way she thought about education. And as I was thinking about all of this, I realized that Maria Montessori, in a way, was a child liberation theologian. Now, stay with me here, especially if your like heresy alarms are going off, because I just said liberation theology. So, working definition for my purposes of liberation theology, it's a theology that asserts that the good news is good news for everybody. So if the way we understand God, so, excuse me, so is the way we understand God and is the message of Jesus good news for the poor? Is it good news for women? Is it good news for those who are disabled? Because they're part of everybody and they're a really important part of everybody. So it stands to reason that if a particular theology is being lived out by Christians, if that theology is harming a group of people then maybe we should reconsider that theology. Because we know that Jesus himself said that love of God and love of neighbor are the two most important things. So if our theology is keeping us from loving our neighbor, then perhaps we need to look at it again and make sure we fully understand um, God and the message of Jesus. So the child liberation theologian asks, is the good news of Jesus good news for children? Because when we don't center children's voices and experiences in the way we think about and understand God, then we end up with a warped understanding of who Jesus is and what it means to live in Christian community with people of all ages. And this is what Maria understood so beautifully. She saw that kids are people who have ideas and preferences and deserve to be treated with dignity. And she saw that when given freedom and appropriate support, all children are capable of learning even those that society in her day thought of as disposable. Maria recognized that children are naturally curious about the world and that behaviors that other people saw as proof of their depravity were in fact evidence of their need for care and attention and opportunities to explore. Maria Montessori understood that children are image bearers of God, just as they are right now, not incomplete image bearers or potential image bearers, but full image bearers. And one of the reasons that Maria understood that kids are full image bearers in spite of their youth is because she understood and observed the ways in which kids are different from adults. She wrote about the idea of the planes of development, which is core to Montessori education. Now, any modern teacher or pediatrician will tell you that all children go through certain developmental phases in the way they understand themselves, the world around them, other community members, but this idea was really revolutionary at the time. This is another way that Maria centered children. She understood, as any good educator or child liberation theologian must, that a child's developmental phase doesn't lessen their status as an image bearer of God. Jesus himself, a human child, went through all the normal developmental stages. He, like all of us, was born with an underdeveloped prefrontal cortex, and I'm doing this because this is where your prefrontal cortex is. This means that Jesus was likely unable to regulate his emotions as a young child. I'm sure Jesus had his share of big feelings. I don't know any small children that don't have big feelings. Um, And he probably screamed and cried on occasion. That doesn't make him sinful any more than it makes any child sinful. It makes them human. It's this balance of understanding that children are on the one hand, precious and complete and unique and capable, and on the other hand, have needs and perspectives and ways of experiencing the world that are different from adults. That's what Maria did so well. Um, We shouldn't demonize or idealize children and that's, I think, a lot of the reason that Maria's uh, philosophy is so enduring. Now, I don't expect everyone here to go out and start a Montessori school or a godly play classroom But I think there are things that each of us can do to love our neighbors who happen to be kids. And I think Maria Montessori's ideas can help with this. First, we can simply be with children. Like Maria Montessori and the teachers trained in her methods, we can observe. We can listen to them with our whole selves and believe what they say about themselves and their experiences with God. And we should do so expectantly knowing that children are God to us in the same way that any person in the least of these categories is God to us. One of my favorite writers on this kind of holy listening with children is Lacey Borgo and she says, to listen wholeheartedly to a child will cost you something. When you are fully present to the child in front of you, you will change. Their experiences of God will touch your own and you will be invited to stretch boundaries of what you thought about God, yourself, and others. May it be so, Lord Jesus. Maybe you're thinking, Meg, I wanna try this practice of being with and learning from children, but I don't have any kids in my life. Well, do I have an opportunity for you? (laughs) Talk to me, we can use your help without kids. The second thing we can do to be better neighbors with our children is that we, like Maria, can give the children in our lives freedom to be themselves at whatever age and stage they're experiencing at the time. In the context of faith, we can trust that they already have an awareness of and a relationship with God, and that even if that relationship looks different in a four-year-old than it does in a 40-year-old, it's no less real. Despite what more authoritarian Christians will lead you to believe, children do not need adults to stand as mediators between them and God. What we can do is use what we know about child development to share our faith with kids in age-appropriate ways, while also allowing them to share their faith with us. We can realize that when it comes to faith, kids are our fellow travelers along the way, and that we can support and learn from each other in our journeys with God. And finally, we can take a cue from Isaiah 11 and allow children to lead us. I can say from experience, if you follow children, they're going to lead you into play. Maria Montessori once said that play is the work of the child. But what exactly do we mean by play? Well, play is something that is freely chosen, done for its own sake, and involves creativity or imagination. Play also tends to be both engrossing and relaxing at the same time. The incredible thing about play though is that even though people involved in the game have no goal outside of enjoyment, the act of playing increases problem-solving skills, relieves stress, and bolsters emotional well-being play is really good for us. And no wonder play is good for us. God is playful. You can see clearly in creation. There's some wonky looking animals out there. And you can also see it in scripture. Do you really think it was necessary for a whale to be involved in Jonah's story? What about Balaam's donkey? Like, for real? God is playful. And Jesus, as revealed to us in the Gospels, is playful. The way he tells stories and subverts expectations is often very playful. And just as Jesus' play is often theological, the kids in godly play often engage in play as a form of theology. Children use play to process ideas and feelings and experiences, and that includes their ideas and experiences with God. In godly play, we playfully combine things from different stories. For example, noticing and wondering how the water from Jesus' baptism might relate to the water in the Exodus story or the water from our own baptism story. And you can see right there where that playful spirit leads us straight into wonder. I'd like to end by allowing you to practice a little wondering. Um, I have a few verses from the scripture we started with on a slide in the um, easy to read version And I want to read it aloud, and then I'm going to ask the same wondering questions that our storytellers ask the children when they encounter a story from the Bible. Then wolves will live at peace with lambs, and leopards will lie down in peace with young goats. Calves, lions, and bulls will all live together in peace. A little child will lead them. Bears and cattle will eat together in peace, and their young will lie down together and not hurt each other. Lions will eat hay like cattle. Even snakes will not hurt people. Babies will be able to play near a cobra's hole and put their hands into the nest of a poisonous snake. People will stop hurting each other. People on my holy mountain will not want to destroy things because they will know the Lord. The world will be full of knowledge about him like the sea is full of water. Now I wonder... What part of this passage you like best? You can say it out loud or you can keep it to yourself. Either one. I'm not afraid of silence. I wonder which part is the most important. I wonder where you are in this passage. What part might be for you or about you this morning? I'm going to leave this up and let you keep pondering for another 90 seconds or so. And then Chris is going to come lead us in the prayers of the people.